The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we can use that term, we can, we can speak to you as Father. You are the Almighty God, you're the creator of heaven and earth, and we can call you Father, or as commonly is implied in the New Testament, we can call you Dad. We can speak to you intimately, intimately like that. We can use the language from this last song, we're your children now. You've loved us in Christ, you've called us to yourself, and we're your children now. We can call you Dad, Father. There is a lot in that word now. Because we are not in any way naturally your children. We are, we are people. We are creatures. We are creations. But you did a great work as has been sung and prayed. You adopted us into your family. Not a physical family, but a spiritual family that is more real than any physical family. You adopted us by including us in Christ, washed us with your blood, and now we're your children. And so we can speak to you and call you dad, and we can say, Father, will you then now again draw near to us this morning and build us up? Will you make us to know and to understand great truths then on the one hand, they are, they are simple truths that we, we who are yours know, have heard, are very familiar with. Would you help us to know what we know? To grasp these great truths and be changed by them. So Father, send your spirit in powerful ways. Cause us to commune with you, Father, Son, and Spirit. To commune with you in powerful ways that change us and that bring you glory. Help us with that this morning, we pray. Thank you, Father. We call you that because we pray in the name of Jesus. Thank you. Amen. Often the best way to deal with a counterfeit is to focus on the genuine. I've been told that that's at least one of the approaches taken in training people to detect counterfeit money, but the principle applies in all other fields, of course. Common forgeries, co common deceptions, they're, they're exposed, sure, they're, they're pointed out, sure, but a good bit of attention is given to teaching people what the genuine article looks like and feels like and sounds like and smells like and tastes like. And that's all, that's all very helpful because it... it what it does is it heightens in us an attentiveness to an awareness of, even kind of a, a subconscious awareness of what's, what's good and true. And it draws our attention onto the truth and fills our minds with what's, with what's right. And that benefits us. And then it also it serves to, to build up a sensitivity to any deviation from that. So we, we sense it almost before we know it, that that's off. That's not quite right. That's wrong. So 
That helps to build a sensitivity to, sensitivity to a deviation, and it works, of course, to help deal with known counterfeits, but here's where it's particularly helpful. It helps us to be alert to the unknown counterfeits, those that have yet to come along. You, you can't actually teach somebody everything that's wrong because who knows what kind of wrong thing is going to be invented tomorrow. You can't teach all the wrongs, but you can focus on, and it pays you to focus on what's genuine and true and right. Point out what's wrong, of course, but focus on what is right. And something like that approach is what lies behind the book of Colossians. We're beginning a new series this morning in the book of Colossians, the New Testament letter book. is actually a letter written to the church in the city of Colossae. And if you look at a Bible map, you could find Colossae is about right in the middle of the western third of what is currently the, the country of Turkey, the modern country of Turkey. It's very close to the, the town of Laodicea and about 100 miles due east of Ephesus. Both, of, both those towns, they, they figure into the, in the book of Colossians. This letter written to this church was meant to also then be passed on and read to the church in Colossae. And as we get into it, you'll notice that a good bit of what's here resembles what we would find in, in Ephesians. So in some way, what we find here in Colossians, you could say it's kind of the stuff Paul always says to any church, anywhere, whatever their situation. Yeah, it is that. But there is an additional element in Colossians, some sort of hard-to-identify counterfeit. It's probably what led Paul to write this letter at this time to this church and have it passed on to neighboring towns. He's heard that they are in some way being subtly undermined by something that apparently they themselves are unaware of. Something's slipped in or is, is creeping into the church, some dangerous deception, and Paul wants to protect, actually, keep this in mind here, God wants to protect his church. And so God moves Paul to write this letter to deal with this counterfeit, and he does so by focusing attention on the genuine, on, on, on the genuine article. Some of the deceptions touched on throughout, we'll, we'll notice there are little pieces here and there that, are, that crop up that we see some of the counterfeit, but it's vague and inexact, so much so that for centuries, scholars have debated and have never come to, to settled conclusion, have debated what exactly was the falsehood being taught there, slipping in. There, there are ideas, there, there's some general understanding, but nobody's ever been able to really settle it because it's never directly addressed. Paul's approach is not to talk about, focus on the counterfeit. His approach is instead to talk about what's true. And that's why it's still helpful for any church anywhere, including us, is that what he, what he does here is he lifts up what is the true message of how God saves in Christ. The, the gospel, the good news. And he highlights all that Jesus is and all that it means for us to be in him, to be included in him. And he, and he paints it for us and lays it out for us so that we sense what it looks like and feels like and tastes like and smells like. And that 
inoculates us against all kinds of error, even whatever error we may face now or next month or next year. So our approach in coming to Colossians is not really to understand what they were facing, but to understand the truth and to be stirred by it and warmed by it and grown up by it. That's what we'll find here in this book. This is a book about treasuring being in Christ. And that'll help us against all manner of falsehood, but it'll also just help us to enjoy Jesus. So that's where we're going in Colossians. And with the general introduction there to this book, let me begin by reading the first two verses. And then I'll make two observations from them. This is Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So, when we look at these first two verses, one thing is immediately obvious, they very closely resemble the opening lines of all kinds of ancient letters. This is just how you wrote a letter back then. You say who the writer is, who it's from, you state who the letter is to, the recipients, and then you always say something like, hello, blessings to you, hope, hope you're well. It's completely ordinary. And so it's tempting, and probably a bunch of us have done this, it's tempting to just kind of like skip right on by that and come to verse 3 to get actually into the heart of the letter. That's what it looks like. But we stop and come back, and on second take, we realize Paul's used this totally common form, and he's filled it with new meaning. So we look at this, and, and we see this important truth in verse 1. Here's the first observation. Through Paul, God speaks to us with authority and purpose. Through Paul, God speaks to us with authority and purpose. So this is Paul writing. And if you didn't have any idea at all who this man Paul was, then this introduction wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't, it wouldn't tell you. So obviously he's, he's a well-known person and he assumes that his reputation precedes him, but he's, he's pulling out a couple things that are known, but he, he pulls them out because he wants to highlight them and underlight them for emphasis. Things they know, but they need to be reminded of. I'm Paul, an apostle, remember. This is the Paul who all the church knew as a former persecutor of Christians, an angry persecutor of Christians. And he'd been radically suddenly changed. You can read about this in the book of Acts if you want, but the basic story in short is that Paul had been on his way to the city of Damascus to hunt down Christians, to capture, imprison, perhaps kill them. He's traveling along on the way to Damascus when Jesus himself abruptly interrupted the journey and appeared to Paul. Paul saw him. The other band of, of travelers, who, of course, traveling with Paul, they, they also were hostile to the church. They also were persecutors. They also were against the whole idea. They knew something 
unusual. Something supernatural was going on, but they didn't know what. They didn't see it quite like Paul saw it. So they knew and they could testify something happened there, but what Paul saw, they didn't see. Jesus himself showed himself to be alive again. Not dead, alive again to Paul and showed himself to be not not alive again in punishment in hell, but alive again at the right hand of the throne in heaven, alive again reigning as the Christ, the King, the Messiah. That's what was in doubt. Everybody knew his name was Jesus, but he's not the Christ. Oh, my word, yes, he is. Oh, my word, yes, he is. That's what struck Paul when Jesus appeared to him and he was shocked and changed fully 180 degrees changed when Jesus appeared to him saved him from his sin and made him a Christian everybody in the church knew that whole story a lot of people who weren't in the church knew that story but what Paul is underlining here is not just that he was made a Christian but that he was made an apostle which is a very special role The scripture tells us that the basic requirement for an apostle was that he had to be an eyewitness of the risen Jesus. He had to to have seen him with his own eyes, like Paul now did. Had to have seen Jesus risen. Paul saw him. And then he had to be specially designated by God, set, set apart, called to a mission sent out as a messenger, a, a, a spokesman, and, and given the authority of God so that what he does is God's work and what he says and with a, says with his mouth or with his pen is the word of God, the true and authoritative word of God. So that he could speak and write with God's authority. That's an apostle, an eyewitness of the risen Jesus, specially called and sent out to express in writing and in word the authority of God, the word of God. An apostle, which is different than Timothy. You see them differentiated here. And Timothy, our brother. Timothy is also one of Paul's traveling missionary band. He's also a church planter. He's starting all kinds of things. He's teaching. He's leading people to faith in Jesus. He becomes a pastor in the church, so he has has authority in the church, but he's not Paul, not an apostle, just a brother. Paul has been uniquely visited by Christ and uniquely spoken to and uniquely set apart and assigned this mission to go to the Gentile world plant and teach the word of God. It's what Jesus assigned him to. And it is by the will of God. It isn't incidental or accidental. It is on purpose. God did this on purpose, which means he has a reason. So, pull all that together, and and what do you get? That God... Not the church, not Paul himself, not Paul's friends, not some group of ministry leaders, that God, by his will, has done something in Paul first to dramatically, 
clearly, radically, publicly change him, so to, to save him, to make him a Christian, and then to send him out to speak his word as an apostle. An official representative spokesperson and testifier on behalf of Christ so that what Paul says is God's very word. Like God planned it, correctly, accurately, infallibly, without error. So that what we have here is intentionally purposed by the will of God to be proclaimed and then protected, delivered to us. Whether we live in Colossae or Laodicea or Ephesus or Salt Lake City, it's the word of God to us. And that's how we're supposed to receive this book and what it teaches. You know, if, if you were to receive a letter on letterhead stamped, from the Oval Office by order of the President of the United States. It's pretty important sounding. Probably cause you to look at it again. But you might say, you know, really? How, how do I know? But if, on the other hand, the letter was delivered to you by General Kelly, the White House Chief of Staff, and you knew who he was, you've seen him on TV, you know, how, you know how he got there, you know what his role is, you know what his job is, and he comes along with a whole bunch of other people that you've seen on TV, you know who they are, and he says, this comes from the president. There'd be an additional level of, I better, wow, I'm surprised, I'm, I'm, I'm maybe, maybe flattered, but certainly this has my attention, this, this seems real, I better listen to it. That's just people. But that would grab your attention. That's just people. This is God who radically and publicly changed this Paul so as to set him up so that we all would know what's coming from this Paul is not coming from men. It's coming from God. That has my attention. I may be a little bit flattered, but it's certainly riveted by it. this this has come on purpose to you. We need to think about this and, and listen to it. Our job is to sit before it and humbly receive it and to be ready to believe it and act upon it where we are called to act and trust it where we are called to trust it. And, and when I say it like that, even... even Maybe you hear a little bit in my tone, called upon. We must sit before it. We must receive it. We must be ready to act on it, ready to obey it, ready to trust it. You hear a little bit of urgency. There's a little bit of, a little bit of maybe of, of sobriety in that. and There's a little bit of weightiness in that. And so we, we, we pull up next to it and say, speak, Lord, I'm listening. And maybe in that, I think, we kind of, Brace ourselves. Okay, hit me. We're ready for a fuss say at the Lord. Uh, okay. I can take it, I think. Okay. 
Yes. Because God is God. Not some guy on the street. God is God. And when he speaks, we should listen and receive it and be ready to, ready to hear what he has to say. And then what he says is amazing. Because the second point is amazing. It's heavy, but in a surprising way. Here's the second observation, which if you're braced for it, comes like, really? And I use, that, I use those words to describe, ready to receive it and believe it and trust it and act on it, because this that he's going to say here, must be received and believed and trusted and acted upon, but not in a way maybe that you're suspecting, but in a way that's sweet. Because here's the second observation. God speaks to his people for grace and peace. God speaks to his people for grace and peace. The second part of the greeting, naturally, is the people the letter is intended for. The recipients, the saints, it says, and faithful brothers, brothers and sisters, brethren, the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ, which are not two different categories of people. They're two different ways of describing the same group, the church. Saints, that word is related to other words you might know, like holy or sanctified. It's all part of the same word family. And all those words in that word family are trying to get at one basic thing. Other, set apart from, distinct, different, unique. Set apart from the ordinary. So you've got the basic and the ordinary, the common. And when you set something apart, it becomes special or holy, unique. And this is not a a category of super special Christian. This is just Christian. All Christians are set apart from the world, set apart from the ordinary, from the common, and are made holy, sanctified, saints. All kind of the same word. So you could say all Christians are sanctified ones. All Christians are holy ones already. That's what we are. We already are that. We who are faithful in Christ. So I understand this carefully. Christian, yes, indeed, and we we heard it in some songs, we heard it in, in some prayers and some scriptures read this morning, yes, indeed, we are called and commanded to live obedient, holy lives. Yes, called and commanded to live dependent on the Lord, faithful to him. Yes, trusting him, yes. Moment by moment, day by day, that's what we're called and commanded to be and to do. And there's plenty of that everywhere in the Bible, including in Colossians. Yes. But. But. As much as we can ask, and and we can and should ask, so, today, have you lived different from the world today? Have you lived a holy life today or not? Have you lived today faithful to the Lord or have you wavered and not been faithful to him? 
Have you lived like the world or, or, or different from it, indistinct? As much as we can ask that, and we can ask that and should ask that of ourselves, we can also say that you, Christian, got up this morning holy. You got up this morning distinct from the world. You got up this morning faithful. And you will tomorrow, no matter what happens today. You can be faithless today and you're faithful. You can be like the world today and you're holy. What? That's a contradiction. You're speaking nonsense. That's a contradiction. Yeah, those are contradictory statements, but they're true statements. You're going to get up tomorrow like you did today, a holy, faithful one. Why? Well, not because of your behavior, but because you are in Christ. See that right there in verse 2. You're faithful in Christ. Something we discussed in several previous weeks in the, the previous series about resurrection life. This is an incredibly, it, it's hard to overemphasize how important, how, how fundamental, how foundational the truth of being in Christ is. God has placed you in union with his Son. Christian, joined you to him, placed you in him. Lots of phrases that are all similar there. A bit like, you may recall this example, this is an inexact example, but it's a helpful one. A bit like a balloon and the air inside of the balloon. Now that breaks down in some ways, but, but remember the balloon and the air in it, wherever the balloon goes, the air inside the balloon also goes. Whatever affects the balloon affects the air inside. So if, if the balloon is, if heat comes against the balloon, the air inside heats up. If cold comes, the air inside chills. To be in the balloon is where you are and how you are is determined by the balloon. Its location and its, its, its atmosphere. So when you were placed in Christ, you went with him into his death and into the grave in him, with him. And then you came out of the grave to live a new life. So you, in Christ, are holy like he is. You, in Christ, are faithful like he is. You, in Christ, then, are well-pleasing to God. Not, this is so important and, and so sweet, so get this, not because you do things that are well-pleasing. And not because you are in increasingly doing things that are well-pleasing, though you are if you're a Christian. Not because you are getting better at living different from the world, though you are, but that, that's not why. You're well-pleasing to him because... God the Father is always maximally, infinitely well-pleased with His Son, Jesus. And when He looks at you, He sees His Son. He sees you in the Son. 
You united to him and Christ in you, as Colossians will say, the hope of glory. And so when when God looks at his son, he is well pleased with his son and all in him. And when God looks at his son and he pours on him a waterfall of grace and pleasure and blessing, you get wet. And when God looks at his son and wraps him up tight in a warm embrace of wide, long, high, deep, infinite love, you get squeezed because you're in Christ. And if This is, this is who you are, Christian. This is what the church is. And Paul's never met these people. Maybe a couple of them here and there, but he doesn't know this church. He doesn't know what their hair color is. He doesn't know what their names are. But, but he can say to them, essentially, are you a Christian? Yeah? I don't know what your name is, but I know this much about you. You're in Christ then you are holy, a saint, well-pleasing and faithful. And then on the authority of the almighty God by whose will I've been sent out as an apostle of Christ, i got a message for you. Brace yourself. Grace and peace to you from your Father. I was waiting for something a little harder than that. Grace and peace to you from your Father. Now, of course, logically we have to allow for the fact that Paul doesn't know these people and he has no idea who's sitting there when it's read in that town or in the next town over here. And logically, of course, he knows that all kinds of people misunderstand what a Christian is and what it means to be a Christian. They don't don't understand the actual message of, of trusting purely, solely, only in Christ's death on the cross to pay for sin. Yeah, we gotta we gotta leave room for that, but that's all assumed. When he talks about people who are in Christ, that, that's assumed. He's talking to genuine Christians. So he can say, this is what's true of you. And the point here is, Christian, do you realize this about you? Think about this. Christian, just think about, think about yourself. If Almighty God were to summon a messenger to go visit you and deliver to you a message, what is the first and most important thing that he would have to say to you? What do you imagine that would be? If you think back over yesterday or this last week, you sit there and you think, if God were actually to pull up and talk to me, the thing he'd probably bring up first would be, he'd have to address this issue right here. He couldn't skip that. He'd have to, he'd have to talk about that. That's the thing I'm thinking about the most. He'd, he'd, talk, he'd bring this up. He'd, he'd talk about that. What's the thing, if God were to send a messenger to talk to you, what's the first, most important message that he'd have for you? What does God want to say to you? My son, my daughter, grace to you, peace to you. Like right here. In one sense, 
These are the typical greeting words of letters of that era. So, in one sense, we, we kind of expect them. But in this context, with, especially with both of these words being used, and how he's using them, Paul's twisting this, he's turning it to make, to make it atypical, to make it uncommon for how a letter would begin. And it's loaded up with, with Paul's idea and Paul's thinking and Paul's approach and what comes in this letter. So this becomes not a completely typical opening to a letter, but a completely typical opening to a word from God. Yeah. That is. Sure. That is how God talks to his people. The thing you must know first and foremost, I've got other things to say, but the thing you must know first and foremost from our Father is child, grace, and peace. He sends Paul with all of his authority to deliver that message. He has a posture of grace towards us, towards you. You stand in his favor. That's what grace is. It is undeserved favor, benefit, kindness, goodness, smile, help, grace. It's what he has for his son, and because you're in him, it's what he has for you. So you can know, Christian, you can know this, and you have to know this. This is the part where, where ironically, it's like you, you got to like brace yourself and believe this. Because we, we are very commonly inclined to, to read the world and then read God through the world rather than the other way around. We, we have to take this first. This is the thus saith the Lord peace, grace to you. And so you can know that whatever God pushes across the table into your life, 100% of that, 100% of that is from and in and for grace. And whatever God feels towards you, whatever God thinks about, about you, whatever God then plans to push across the table to you in the future, a year, ten, a thousand years from now, is from and in and for, 100% from and in and for, grace. Other people may do evil and may mean it for evil, but he means it for good. It is grace, period. And he always gets his way because he's God and he's never thwarted. Do you realize God is never up there saying, <laughs> I meant that to go okay, but I couldn't pull it off. I didn't see that coming, so I'll help you deal with it. No, never. The sovereign one who is God reigns supreme, superintends over Everything that happens, and I realize that, that I'm right next to a, a list of gigantic questions about this and that and the other. Yeah, I, yes, for sure. But we got to approach those questions through bracing ourselves and believing grace and peace to you. If you approach 
through those questions you come to God, you will get the wrong answer every time. There, there are questions for sure, but 100% grace because that's how God the Father is with God the Son and you are in God the Son. Believe it, Christian. His will is never thwarted and he means to give you grace and does so because he always gets his way. Grace to you and peace. Peace between you and God because of what God graciously did in the cross. You know the story, Christian, remember it. It wasn't always grace and peace. Because of our sin, we were enemies of God, at, at odds with him. Wrath is the word the Bible uses. We were enemies, there was animosity, but God in grace crucified Christ to pay for our sin. We sang it this morning, washed by his blood, the blood of the cross. His death is what he's getting at there. He died in our place. So there is not any more condemnation. There is not any more animosity. There is no more, there's no more nothing between us. Peace with God. And more than that, peace in life and peace that's coming. We should be thinking here of the word, the Old Testament word for peace, shalom which is not just about the absence of conflict, it's about restoration and wholeness and union and everything put back together. At peace with God, what God then is doing is peace by peace, P-I-E-C-E, peace by peace, he's putting it all back together. That's the story of your life. He's putting it all back together. He's made peace with you and peace for you. Started now, completed fully one day. Grace and peace to you, to us, means acceptance by and security under and personal access to and intimacy with God Almighty. And so, with that, your life is stabilized, planted rooted, watered, nourished, growing up to bear fruit that lasts. That's who you are. And if that's who you are, and if you'll hear that and, and embrace it and say, that's who I am in Christ then it's possible to be released to joy and hope. To walk in that. Which is what he, as a good father, wants for those who are now his children, to walk in joy and in hope, which is why that's the first thing that he delivers to us. Here's the truth about you. Grace and peace. He wants us to hear that and know it. 
but oddly. Like, so I, I come to this, this point here where I got to say oddly, and, and I hope that as you, if you're tracking with this, you feel like, yeah, that's, this is going to be odd. Because what I'm going to talk about is why we don't believe that. Why would anybody not believe that? Why would you not want that? Why would you not be drawn to that? Well, we are in part. That resonates, for a Christian, that resonates with you. And if you're not a Christian, the invitation is come and become one and find this. But if you are, it resonates with you, but you find, we find that oddly, something in us is hesitant to embrace that completely. We are remarkably, somewhat frequently, I think, at least for me, inclined to view God as hostile towards us. I think, if we think through this through, we can figure out where this comes from. Satan views God as hostile to him, and he is. And from the very beginning, that's what he invited Adam and Eve to believe. And when we were in Adam, that's the opposite of being in Christ, being in Adam, that's what we thought, and that's what we experienced, and that's what we believed, and that's what we walked in. And while we're new, there are some, some deep ruts in the road that something in us is still inclined back towards, and we have an enemy outside of us that still kind of tries to pull us back towards this. It's, it's the original lie. Is God really for you? That's the original lie, Genesis chapter 3. Is God really, God's actually have to rip you off. And there's something in us that is still a little bit inclined to believe that because we think God hard. Hard. And hard to please. We mistakenly read and hear about holy, 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 and we bring that down as hard and hard to please and eager to punish. So watch out. He's demanding, perpetually perturbed at us and at our failures. That's the seed that Satan still tries to sow into us and it finds receptive ground in our human hearts because we're still not yet fully perfected. And thinking like this before God, the human heart usually goes one of two ways, which actually are, are the same way. Usually go one of two ways. We, we, we think ourselves before a hard and hard to please God, so we work hard at pleasing God. This looks really religious. Got a list of things that we do and we work at doing them really well. And to the degree that we think we're doing them well, we are pleased with ourselves and judgmental of others who aren't. That's a false hope, though, because it's tremendously insecure. As soon as you stop doing well or as soon as you realize something else in the list, you realize, man, there's more I got to do. You're only as safe as your performance. Which is why then the other path is people say, well, forget that. Who needs that? I don't need a God like that. And embark on their own path. 
but they're from the same source. We view God as hard and hard to please. Those are, those are really common paths in the, world, in the world, which again is why God wants to deliver a contrary message. Before we talk about anything that I want you to do, before I talk about anything I'm calling you to do, let me get this across to you clearly and powerfully on my authority, grace and peace to you. God delivers that first because God is grieved, like any of us would be, to be misrepresented and therefore alienated from one that he cares about. We, we would be grieved to be misrepresented and alienated. And God wants to clear all that up by with the authority that he vests in Paul declaring to us, that's not the case. We've got to rethink, we've got to think this through again about, about what it is to be called to be holy while already being holy and well-pleasing. That's, that's the truth. We talk about that all the time. But really, really, I'm pleased with you. You're mine, my treasured possession. He wants to get that across. He's grieved by by being misrepresented, and we're grieved by thinking wrongly about him. It's, it's the opposite of joyful communion. It's burdensome distance. It's sorrow. It's, it's performance-based. It's walking on eggshells. It leads to a whole bunch of judgmentalism. It leads to a whole bunch of despair in us, and we feel like we're failing. We, we view God as sitting over us as judge, and we see our failure, and we're, oh. Who, who wants that? We don't want that. He doesn't want that. There's no strength to walk with God, no strength to actually pursue moment-by-moment obedience and holiness. There's no strength in it when viewing God as a displeased judge and overlord. On the contrary, strength to lay aside our lives, our own individual perspectives, to lay aside self as ruler and to surrender to him, strength to walk that life comes when we fully realize that Christ is good enough and deep enough and wide enough and lovely enough to be life for us. And he is. Colossians gets at that. Colossians is going to lift up who Christ is and invite us to live in him, to walk in him, to know grace and peace in him, and to walk in newness of life. So the message to us from him this morning is, is believe this really on the authority of God Almighty, grace and peace to you. That's good news. Let me pray. Father, would you help us to believe this, which is hard to believe. Something in us drifts from it. Help us to believe it. You've done a great work in Christ. Thank you. Will you show us the breadth and the depth of that and woo us, win our hearts to him. Thank you for grace and peace in Christ. Will you unfold that now in coming weeks and build up your church and honor your name? Thank you, Lord. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.